This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Bruce Trantner, who's the senior author of a state-of-the-art review on autoimmune pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, which was recently published in the Blue Journal. Dr. Trantner is Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. To start with, what is autoimmune pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, and why did you feel it was important to write this detailed review of this condition at this time? Thank you. Well, autoimmune pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, which I refer to as APAP or autoimmune PAP, is a rare disease characterized by the abnormal accumulation of pulmonary surfactant, which results in hypoxemic respiratory insufficiency and in severe cases, respiratory failure and sometimes death. Two decades of research have raised APAP from obscurity to a paradigm of molecular pathogenesis-based diagnostics and therapeutics development. And the reason to write this review at this time is to raise awareness about these important advances in our understanding of its pathogenesis, uh, diagnostics, and treatments. So what are the other types of pulmonary alveolar proteinosis? Well, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis is not a single disease. Rather, it's a syndrome that occurs in a heterogeneous group of diseases. It's defined by a shared cardinal feature, the abnormal accumulation of pulmonary surfactant, and the mechanistically distinct diseases that can cause PAP are usually divided into disorders of surfactant clearance and those of surfactant production. Disorders of surfactant clearance include APAP, also known as uh, primary PAP or autoimmune PAP, and secondary PAP, which is caused by a, a variety of underlying conditions that reduce either the numbers or functions of alveolar macrophages. Some examples of secondary PAP include myelodysplasia, the most common cause, and various inhalation syndromes, uh, for example, inhalation of silica or titanium and other inorganic dusts can cause secondary PAP. There's a hereditary form of PAP caused by genetic mutations in receptors for uh, either the alpha chain or the beta chain of the uh, GMCSF receptor. And finally, a, a category uh, known as uh, disorders of surfactant production, uh, also called congenital PAP or pulmonary surfactant metabolic dysfunction disorders are generally caused by mutations in the genes required for normal surfactant production. So how common is autoimmune pulmonary alveolar proteinosis? And is it more common in certain patient groups? Yeah, so several studies have recently been done to address the prevalence and incidence of uh, autoimmune PAP. Autoimmune PAP has a reported prevalence of 7 to 26 cases per million in the general population, and its annual incidence has been estimated to be 0.4 to 1.65 per million in the general population. It is more common in adults, especially in the third to fourth decade, especially in smokers, but it can present in children as young as three years old and individuals as old as 90 years old. And what's understood about the pathogenesis? Well, the big advance, I think, is that autoimmune PAP is now defined as an autoimmune disease with the cause being a high level of GMCSF autoantibodies that block 
GMCSS signaling in patients. Alveolar macrophage is clear about half of the surfactant from alveoli and require GMCSF to do this. Without GMCSF, surfactant-derived cholesterol accumulates in the cytoplasm of the macrophages, and because it's toxic, macrophages esterify and sequester it in intracytoplasmic lipid droplets as a kind of a cell protective mechanism. But this causes the cells to become foamy and large and impairs their ability to clear surfactant from alveoli. Um, this is the, the primary cellular abnormality. GMCSF is also required constitutively to stimulate host defense functions of uh, both macrophages and neutrophils. And these cells are both impaired functionally in APAP, which results in an increase in risk of serious infections from a wide range of microbial pathogens, not the least of which is nocardia, which uh, can result in brain abscesses in a sort of unusually high frequency or an unexpectedly high frequency. The decrease in GMCSF signaling has also been implicated in a possible mechanism driving pulmonary fibrosis that sometimes occurs in these patients. So how does the condition present? And, and then what is the natural history? Well, the most common clinical presentation is progressive dyspnea of insidious onset in a previously healthy individual, adult individual. The chest radiograph uh, usually shows nonspecific diffuse ground glass opacification that has the appearance of pulmonary edema, but without the other findings of heart failure. Uh, many, if not most patients are initially misdiagnosed as having pneumonia and are treated with several courses of antibiotics. And it's only after the failure to improve uh, on antibiotics uh, that prompts further disease-specific testing or referral that eventually results in a diagnosis of APAP in many patients. And although no prospective natural history studies have been reported, most patients fall into one of three general clinical course groups, either rapidly progressive disease, which occurs in an unclear but not large percentage, perhaps 10 or maybe 10% of, of patients, the second group is more slowly progressive or stable disease, and that's most patients. And then the third category is spontaneous improvement, and that occurs in probably about 5 to 7% of studies. And that, that value has been reproduced in, in several studies. So it seems like there is a small percentage of people that spontaneously improve. The, the vast majority of patients fall in that middle group of smoldering ongoing disease. And how often does it progress to pulmonary fibrosis? This is one of the least well understood manifestations of this disorder, but it does appear to occur in perhaps up to 20% of patients. And it seems to occur later in the course of disease, either because of the natural history or because of things that happen along the way. For example, whole lung lavage and other things that happen to the patients. It's, not, it's really not clear about the, this aspect of the disease, or at least this is the least well understood aspect of the disease. Then what are the typical findings then? Uh, a pulmonary function tests, um, chest imaging, bronchoscopy? Well, people typically get a chest x-ray fairly quickly, but in the typical uh, findings on the chest x-ray, I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, uh, diffuse ground glass specification. On the CT scan, the, where the resolution is higher, there's a diffuse ground glass specification superimposed on interlobular septal thickening, a radiologic sign known as crazy paving which is characteristic but not diagnostic of APAP since it also occurs in other 
lung disorders. Pulmonary function testing can show restrictive lung impairment with volume loss and reduction in DLCO that's out of proportion to the level of restrictive lung impairment, whereas spirometry is not usually very helpful and is normal in, in many patients, actually. Uh, during bronchoscopy, the airways appear normal. However, bronchoalveolar lavage returns a fluid that is opaque and milky white or yellowish uh, with a sedimentary layer that forms uh, upon standing, the thickness of which is an indication of disease severity, with a thicker layer being representing increased severity. Now, an important issue is, is how widely available is GM-CSF testing? And are there also GM-CS signaling, signaling tests? Right. So this antibody testing, GMCSF, serum GMCSF autoantibody testing has been in practical use for several decades in a clinical research diagnostic setting. However, in the last few years, the test has become commercially available in several centers for routine clinical use. In the United States, these locations include the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, CAP-CLIA Lab, and also the National Jewish Hospital in Denver. The test is also performed at a research level in centers in other countries, in Germany, in China, and Japan. In the US, tests of GMCSF signaling, which is impaired by the antibodies, is also available commercially. And these are useful companion tests since APAP can be caused by a higher level of a relatively lower affinity antibody or a lower level of a relatively higher affinity antibody. So both tests are helpful to account for this diversity or mechanistic diversity in terms of the levels of antibodies. Now there are, for diagnosis, there are essential and supporting criteria for the diagnosis of autoimmune pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. What are they? Right, uh, the, the really critical piece here is the presence of a high level of, of uh, GMCSF autoantibody. So the essential criterion is an abnormal serum GMCSF autoantibody test which I think it's fair to say now serves as the gold standard for the diagnosis. The normal range for the serum GMCSF autoantibody test is less than three micrograms. And in, in our laboratory anyway, the, uh, an evaluation of 153 healthy people showed a median value of 0.33 micrograms per mil. So it's quite low. In APAP patients, the abnormal range is higher than nine micrograms generally. And in 338 patients in a recent evaluation, uh, the median was 84 micrograms per mil, but sometimes the levels go very high. So basically a high level of GMCSF is the essential criterion for diagnosing autoimmune PAP. Supporting criteria are three, a CT scan showing diffuse ground glass, ground glass opacification and superimposed septal thickening, BAL cytopathology showing amorphous PAS positive granular sediment, enlarged foamy PAS positive or oil red O positive alveolar macrophages and cell debris. Basically, it's quite dirty looking. Another criterion is a lung biopsy, which shows uh, alveoli filled with eosinophilic PAS positive granular sediment, uh, enlarged foamy alveolar macrophages and cholesterol class. But I would stress that a lung biopsy is not able to result in a disease specific diagnosis of PAP. It's not able to specifically identify any type of PAP. It just simply can show that the it show the presence of PAP. In contrast, the serum antibody test is essentially 100% sensitive and 100% specific. So 
it's really important to get the antibody test. So I've, I've done therapeutic lung lavage a few times in the past, and it's, it's my understanding it still remains the current standard of care. When is it indicated, and what's the optimal way to perform it? Right. Yes, so whole lung lavage is still the current standard of care throughout the world, although it's not standardized among institutions with re respect to the indications, the timing of administration, or methods used to evaluate the treatment response. It's also not widely available medical centers, and it's generally unavailable at pediatric medical centers. The most common indication, in my experience, and the experience of those that I know that take care of PFP patients, is disease progression manifesting as, as progressive function-limiting dyspnea. But other indications include a decline in lung function, especially DLCO, declining blood oxygen levels, an increasing shunt fraction, radiographic pr progression, and in particular, the desire to reduce supplemental oxygen use. I think that uh, whole lung lavage is best performed by an experienced team, which uh, optimally would include nursing support, uh, anesthesiology, respiratory therapy, and either an interventional pulmonology or surgery staff. And I, the, the procedure is, it's simple in concept, but practicalities of it are somewhat involved. But very briefly, it involves intubation with a double lumen endotracheal tube to isolate each lung, mechanical ventilation of one lung with simultaneous filling and draining of the other lung with saline to physically remove the accumulated surfactant. In terms of the amount of lavage fluid needed, generally 20 to 30 liters is effective in many adult patients. However, Sometimes up to 50 liters per lung is used in some patients. Now, there have been several randomized trials of uh, GM-CS augmentation. Can you summarize the, the results from these trials? Sure, thank you. Um, the first randomized placebo-controlled double-blind study of GM-CSF is the PAGE trial that was conducted in Japan in 64 APAP patients that had mild to moderate APAP. And this showed a reduction in the alveolar arterial oxygen gradient over the 24-week treatment period in the treated patients compared to placebo. The study also showed improvement in the surfactant burden as measured by quantitative CT densitometry and also in the biomarkers of PAP. No significant improvement was seen in either clinical or patient-reported outcomes in that trial. The second uh, uh, global randomized uh, placebo-controlled uh, blinded study of inhaled GMCSF occurred in 138 patients over a 24-week period and compared three treatment groups, continuous daily uh, GMCSF, daily GMCSF on alternating weeks, and placebo. The results of this study showed significant improvement in the alveolar arterial oxygen gradient and also in DLCO, chest CT ground glass opacification score, and the St. George's respiratory questionnaire score, the total score. And this was uh, true for the continuous daily treatment group compared to placebo. It also showed that uh, treatment was more effective when administered continuously than on alternating weeks. None of these uh, two trials uh, identified any important safety signals. And a third trial, a randomized uh, placebo-controlled uh, global phase three trial is now underway in the United States, Europe, and Japan, and en enrollment is proceeding. Uh, do we know whether it's beneficial to perform lung lavage prior to 
GMCS augmentation. Right. Several case reports in a small randomized study conducted in Italy have shown that prior whole lavage improves the response to inhaled GMCSF. Uh, one relevant aspect of the choice of primary treatment approach is the timing of the treatment response. Whole and lavage results in essentially immediate improvement, essentially within days. Uh, in contrast, inhaled GMCSF may take several months for a clinical improvement to become evident. Because of all this uh, and the studies uh, combining whole and lavage and inhaled GMCSF, it seems reasonable to initiate therapy with whole and lavage and follow this with inhaled GMCSF. So is GMCSF augmentation ready for prime time? And if so, how available and how expensive is it? Well, while numerous small studies in the two controlled trials indicate GMCSF is safe and support its clinical efficacy as therapy of APAP, the available clinical trial data has not resulted in regulatory approval. And this is definitely a problem because it's difficult to get reimbursement. One of the reasons is that for, for finishing the, uh, the current trial and getting regulatory approval is that it will help, will likely help with the re reimbursement costs since uh, like most biologics, inhaled GMCSF is not inexpensive. It is uh, currently, uh, GMCSF is available as an off-label treatment in some countries, including the United States, but we are hopeful that the ongoing study will yield sufficient regulatory approval data for having inhaled GMCSF as therapy of APAP. So there, are there any other potential treatments we can use? A no, quite a number of things have been tried over the years since it was first identified in the 50s. But just to hit the, the uh, more relevant ones, prednisone has been evaluated recently and, and has been found not to be useful in APAP. And the reason is that it results in a poor outcome with respect to worsening of the already existing infection risk uh, associated with APAP. Plasmapheresis, which makes theoretical sense with the aim to reduce the levels of GMCSF autoantibody in patients, uh, has been evaluated in, uh, in APAP. However, the antibody levels are so high and distributed throughout the tissues of the body that the procedure needs to be performed daily for weeks just to effectively reduce the levels of, of antibody below the critical threshold. And this is really not practical. It's sort of a heroic effort to do enough plasmapheresis to make a difference over time. Another approach targeting the antibody is rituximab, designed to reduce the production of antibodies by reducing the cells that make them. And this has been evaluated in a small number of patients. However, the data is not particularly strong or convincing, and no specific treatment approach has been identified as effective. Thus, uh, in my opinion, uh, rituximab should be reserved patients who are refractory to other therapy. Rizuvastatin has been evaluated in a small number of patients and was associated with a marked clinical improvement in a small number of patients. However, there's just not enough data to recommend this as, a, as an approach. Lung transplantation is sometimes required in, in APAP patients who develop clinically significant pulmonary fibrosis, but it's important to remember that the disease returns after transplantation in every case known where that has happened and requires continued treatment. The potential utility of antifibrotic therapy in PAP is, is essentially untested, as far as I'm aware. Just before we finish, uh, are there any other aspects of this condition uh, you'd like to highlight? 
It's important to know that our understanding of APAP has improved tremendously over the past several decades. The pathogenesis has been elucidated. It's an autoimmune disease directed specifically at GMCSF. These studies have also highlighted an important role for GMCSF in the lung. In my opinion, it's a, an essential pulmonary hormone. And we now have simple, effective, non-invasive diagnostic methods that are clinically and, and commercially available. Several pathogenesis-based treatments are under evaluation with inhaled GMCSF representing the most promising and well-studied. Because of the rarity and nonspecific symptom signs and routine test results, awareness of APAP and a high degree of suspicion is really critical to a timely and accurate diagnosis. I think that's really an important point to emphasize. And I just would point out that the, the PAP Foundation website contains information about testing and PAP in general, available for providers and patients alike. And I would refer people with further questions uh, to that address, which is all lowercase letters, papfoundation.org. Oh, I'd like to thank Dr. Trapnell for this, this discussion about this rare but very interesting condition. To the listener, to read the articles, uh, article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.ats.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. So thank you again for listening. Thank you.